Welcome to the Deschooling Dialogues. This podcast is a co-creation between Culture Hack Labs and Cosmos Journal. Culture Hack Labs is a not-for-profit advisory that supports social movements, organizations, and activists to create cultural interventions for systems change. You can learn more at culturehack.io. Post-production is made possible by the dedicated supporters of Cosmos Journal. The mission of Cosmos is the transformation in harmony with all of life. Visit www.cosmosjournal.org to join. I'm your host, Alnur Lada. In this episode, I meet with the late, great Gustavo Esteva. This conversation took place in February 2021 at Unitiera, the radical de-schooling university set up by Gustavo in Oaxaca City, Mexico. Welcome to season one of the Deschooling Dialogues. This is a podcast about both unlearning and remembering. As our species is being prepared for even deeper complexity, breakdown, tragedy, renewal, and rebirth. This transition calls upon all of us to be vigilant students of our cultures, to contemplate our entangled destinies, to abandon our entitlement, to transcend the apparent duality of inner and outer work, and to reaffirm our responsibility to each other and the interwoven fabric of our sentient planet and the living cosmos. This is just some of what we'll explore together. In this first season, we're going to learn some of the basics of de-schooling, from decolonization practices, alternatives to traditional education, what's being learned on the edges of social justice movements, and the deep-time lessons of indigenous wisdom and knowledge systems. Um, so first, we're very happy to have Gustavo Esteban uh, for one of the first episodes of the Deschooling Dialogues. It's very fitting that we're with you first, because the, the name Deschooling Dialogues was inspired by Ivan Illich's book, Deschooling Society. And I know you knew Ivan and uh, were, were influenced by his work. Yes. Uh, and you've also continued that culture of, of, of de-schooling. So maybe we start with you just telling us about your background and your, your story and your journey. Well, it's a very long story. I would say I am basically a um, deprofessionalized public intellectual activated by the people around me. Uh, uh, for a long time, I was calling myself an activist, but now I have really discovered that they activate me. I am not activating anyone. And then I do live for the last uh, more than 40 years. I have been working independently with the people, basically indigenous peoples in Oaxaca. I moved to Oaxaca 30 years ago. I have my a small piece of land where I cultivate my own food. Uh, and I live in a small Zapotec village uh, in interaction, in permanent interaction with indigenous people in Oaxaca, but also in networks around the world. I am very close to the Zapatistas since 1994. Um, I am basically uh, doing things, uh, even if I love to write and I have published a lot of books, what I really love to do is to interact with people. How did you get into this work? At one point you were a journalist, is that right? Not really. It was, uh, I, I started uh, my life in the private sector uh, with a great, successful and incredible and amazing, uh, spectacular uh, advancement. I was 
personal manager of Procter & Gamble uh, when I was 19 years old, and then personal manager of IBM in Mexico, uh, and then uh, my own professional bureau. But then I discovered that it was impossible to live a decent life in that kind of world. And those were the years in Mexico where we were listening to Fidel Castro entering Havana, and here people were in turmoil. Then I got my lessons from the real world, and then I abandoned my profession. Then, after trying a clandestine group and to organize, I became first a leftist, then a Marxist, then uh, the idea of becoming, uh, followed the Che Guevara. That was the time of Che Guevara, and then that was the model for all of us. And then we tried in a clandestine group to have something uh, that will become a guerrilla, and then it was it collapsed before starting. That was a very important lesson for me about violence, and then we stopped the idea of violence, and we tried no violence. And first I tried in the government, and then I got, because we had a populist president, I had very high positions in the government, and I was, in 1976, in the immediate danger of becoming a minister in the new government. And then I quit the government forever, because by that time I knew that the government, the state, is a, a dispositive to co for control and domination and not for social change. Then I abandoned it. With this, the idea, the leftist idea of seizing power and capturing the state to organize the revolution, these kind of things, and then I started to work at the, at the service uh, in collaboration with people at the grassroots. Mm -hmm. uh, we created an independent organization. We, it grew very fast and very much. What was uh, it called? Um, autonomy, decentralism, and gestion. Gestion is very difficult to translate. Um, it's the connection between the different people. And uh, we were working at one point in uh, 25 states of Mexico. We were all over the place and doing almost everything, following what the people wanted us to do. Uh, we invented um, a crate to a la palabra, a crate without any support. Then one community can, would come to our office and ask for a crate for the community and then came back with a check without any kind of, only based in trust. And that was very successful, and, and, and that was one of the activities that we were doing, associated with uh, technical aspects, political aspects, agrarian aspects, uh, almost the, the whole, uh, everything that the communities wanted. And after some time, we started also to work in the cities, because the campesinos were coming to the cities. And we started to work also with the so-called informal sectors in the cities. And then the network, this organization, was covering uh, all the aspects of the society at the grassroots with the so-called popular uh, sectors. And how did you end up in Oaxaca and setting up Unitera? Well, um, my, um, I, I am living at eight kilometers from the place where my Zapote grandmother was born then in a very real sense, I was coming back to the land of my ancestors. I had been working a lot with things in Oaxaca, but finally, it, it was uh, meaningless to keep a flat in Mexico City with the kind of work I was doing. And then we abandoned, uh, I abandoned with my compañera, I abandoned Mexico City and came to live here 32 years ago. After looking different places, this was the place mm -hmm. where I should come. And that was, 
first a very lucky decision because uh, Oaxaca is the only state in Mexico where the majority of the populations are indigenous peoples of 16 different indigenous peoples. And then the indigenous culture here is it's a reality, it's a presence, it's a, you, you, you cannot uh, ignore uh, the indigenous reality. And for me to, to learn the whole thing, I think I came here like uh, 1988, 1889. In the 90s, uh, it was first 1992 was the moment of affirmation of the indigenous people in the whole American continent because of the 500th anniversary of the invasion. Uh, it was a moment of affirmation. It was a spectacular. And it was our discovery that how much we ignored how different we are. Uh, we were, in the very Western tradition, we were all the time assuming that we were the same human beings and that's it. And then because of the indigenous people, because, because of 92, we started to discover, no, no, they, they, they are different. They are, they are different kind of beings. And then we need to, to discover how, how to talk, how to interact with them in a different way. 25 years of, of, of work. It was talking, interacting with the people in Oaxaca, but also with people coming from other countries. Uh, we have students and researchers, etc., coming here. And um, from Japan or the United States or Canada or Austria or Finland or any, many, many different places. And then trying to talk with them to, to understand the, uh, the, the connection. Uh, we discovered two things. One is the real dialogue happens only doing things together, not just talking, not just exchanging ideas not just conversation, doing things together, then you can have a, a real uh, dialogue. Second, perhaps this, is, this sounds very romantic, but it is to say, perhaps we cannot understand each other mind to mind, but we can connect heart to heart. Uh, it is like Fuerza de Amor. It's, it's a, different, a different level of, of interaction. And that then we, we were involved in that kind of things. And then in that context, uh, to have the Zapatistas was an incredible blessing. It was an opening uh, to, to a whole different uh, way of doing the things, of opening the interaction with others. Uh, I think for me it's a very good example of what happened if what, uh, when they organized it in 1996, what they call it the intergalactic encounter, when people from all over the world were coming, with a lot of Trotsky and Marxist-Leninists and all kinds of groups saying, this is the moment to create again another international, uh, in the tradition of the international uh, organizations of the socialists. Uh, at the end, the subcommandante Marcos announced the creation of the International of Hope. Uh, that was completely different. It was not an organization, it was not an apparatus, a dispositive. It was uh, united by a common hope in, in changing everything. And then I have been with the, of course, with the um, Zapatistas in them, uh, since then in very different ways. I was an advisor in uh, the negotiations with the, with the government. They invited a hundred advisors and I was one, one of them. And I was lucky enough in this process uh, to finally meet uh, with Ivan Illich. 
Uh, when Ivan was, uh, Ivan was at the peak of his fame in the early 70s, I was living at 60 kilometers from his place. But for us, uh, in the Marxist left, he was just a reactionary priest. And then we did not care even in reading his stuff. We were saying, yes, he's criticizing uh, education and health in the capitalist society. Of course, uh, it's shit. But in the socialist uh, world, we will have good education and good health, like Cuba is showing to the world. Uh, that was the conviction in the 70s. Then finally, because of a friend I met with, uh, with Ivan in 1983, I was immediately fascinated. Uh, and then I started to read frantically all, the, all his books and, and uh, we started to collaborate and then we became friends. And then, of course, I discovered that perhaps what Ivan has is the people's discourse. And the basic words of Ivan, I have heard them among the people at the grassroots, not in any book. Words like vernacular are words used by the people here at the grassroots, not by the middle classes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So most people in the West don't know Ivan Illich. Um, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about his, his role in the, in the discourse of decolonizing education and his capitalist critique. Yes, I think that, um, and, and in fact, we are convinced uh, that Ivan anticipated what is happening today better than any other person I know, that he was clear what will happen in 1970. And he said at one point, a prophet is not a person with a crystal ball, but a person that can go deep in the examination of the current reality and discover the basic trends. And then he discovered the basic trends. His contributions are first, he is, I think, the most solid critic of the industrial mode of production. And because of the industrial mode of production, capitalist or socialist, he can discover the basic counterproductivity of modern institutions. And uh, he discovers how these institutions will collapse the way they are collapsing uh, today. He anticipated this kind of collapse and discovered uh, something else. How in this process, when the modern society is falling apart, the people will be destroyed for what they are uh, and they'll be transformed into subsystems of systems. What we are in a sense seeing today that they are creating the cybernetic man, the young man plugged into a cellular or something. It's, he is no longer a person, he is a subsystem of a system. I think that we need to discuss the current situation with the words of Ivan, with the eyes of Ivan, that he really opens our minds and hearts to a completely different thing. And it is, it helps not only to understand what is happening, why it is happening, why the collapse of, the, of everything that we knew, how the world when, that we knew is, is, is no longer there, but also what to do. He, he anticipated what we are doing today. For example, he is not announcing 
at the end of Tools for Conviviality, he's not talking about creating parties or creating organizations or revolutionary organizations. Uh, he has a different definition of revolution, but he's talking about coalitions of the discontented people. And this is exactly what we are doing all the time today. It is people that are discontent with what is happening that are creating coalitions. And, and these kind of things, this is what I find fascinated in Ivan. In fact, I am trying to, to, to launch with some friends and, and a, a project to document everything from Ivan, to collect all his work and to disseminate it electronically and in a very possible way. Mm -hmm. how, how did Ivan Illich end up in Mexico in the 70s? Uh, it was very clear, it was a very conscious decision. Uh, he was already a critic of, uh, of the system uh, when uh, the Pope uh, and President Kennedy had an agreement to send to Latin America 10% of all the priests and nuns of uh, North America. And then the church asked the band, the Cardinal Spellman and others asked the band uh, to organize the process of of sending these priests and nuns and uh, train them to go to Latin America. What was his background? Like, what would put him in that position? Um, he was... Because he was so brilliant, uh, he was really amazing. Um, he became a priest in Rome. He was invited for a brilliant diplomatic career. He was to become the private secretary of the Pope. And then he escaped and took a flight to New York to a study in Princeton. But then being in Princeton, uh, crossing, and this is very important for our conversation, <clears throat> being in New York with Cardinal Spellman, that became person protecting him, he crossed to the Puerto Rican uh, neighborhoods and saw the horror of how the priests, the Irish priests there, were treating the the people from Puerto Rico. And then he went immediately with Cardinal Spellman and asked for the parish. And for the first time, he became a real priest, <laughs> a real Catholic priest, uh, giving the mass, etc. And then she changed everything. In uh, We are talking about the 50s and the early 60s. And then in that context, he was in the in the church, he was uh, singing, bringing music, uh, using Spanish instead of Latin, uh, changing everything. Um, and then he became famous of, of the kind of things he was doing, and he started to publish the critique of the church and the alternative for Latin America. And then after some point, he was sent to Puerto Rico, where he was vice rector of the University of Puerto Rico, he started to do fantastic things. That is where he started to find a critique uh, with Everett Dreimer, a, a critique of the, of the school, seeing what the school was doing to the, to the people. Um, he elaborated something about that kind of thing, and then he was in that position, a, a prominent um, first uh, about Latin America. He was one person of the church that knew well Latin America. The story is, goes on and on. He went to visit uh, in Brazil um, Bishop Elder Camara, a very famous man in, in the whole of Latin America. And Elder Camara uh, 
adopted Ivan immediately, and he was giving to Ivan one book every day, and then the next day introducing the author of the book uh, to Ivan. And then that is how he met Freire, and they, they became uh, friends. And, and then Don Halder Camara told Ivan, if you really want to know uh, Latin America, you need to walk Latin America. And then, this is very impressive, I don't know, he walked from Santiago de Chile to Caracas, Venezuela. <laughs> Walking that a lot. In the 1960s, he did Yes, that. yes. Uh, that is in the 60s. That, that is the kind of thing, a <laughs> person that, that was Ivan. Then he was known because of these kind of things, and then he was invited to organize. And then he was horrified about the idea of bringing all the um, priests and nuns of America. It, it would be the worst kind of colonization ever conceived. And then he found a place in Latin America where he will create a center to train them. Uh, he discovered Cuernavaca, very close to a big airport, etc., but um, isolated. He invented a fantastic uh, language school for them to learn very quickly, very, very good Spanish. The, the best, uh, with the methods that created by Ivan, that still exists, it's a fantastic language school. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he was telling them what they were going to do. And then most of them never went, <laughs> came back to the US and decided not to go. And those that went were no longer um, damaging. They were transformed with with Ivan. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting in Unitiera in Oaxaca, and maybe to ask you about the the pedagogy here. You mentioned Freire, the author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, and and Illich, of course, with Deschooling Society and Tools for Conviviality. Um, maybe tell us about your understanding of pedagogy and what you're doing here and your point of view on education. Yes, uh, we don't have any pedagogy. Um, when someone asks uh, us, uh, we said that we can use um, baby's pedagogy, that the babies learn things as difficult as to think, to walk, and to speak without any pedagogy, without any educator, without any education. And then we are trying to reclaim that, uh, that condition of, of, of learning. We are explicitly trying to go beyond uh, beyond education. I, I will briefly say that when my first uh, daughter uh, became of school age, uh, that is long time ago, uh, then I could not find a school to which I can trust. I put my my daughter uh, a public or private school. And then I created a school with some friends in which we mixed uh, a lot of things, Montessori and Waldorf and, and all kinds of alternative uh, ways of, of, of teaching. To make that long story short, when my daughter Richard uh, ended high school, we closed the school. That was very successful at that time, because by that time uh, my daughter and uh, her parents were convinced that the problem was not the quality of the school, the quality of education, but the school itself. That the, that the problem was the school. This, we are talking about the, the 60s. And then, for the last 50 years, I have been exploring alternatives. 
for some time alternative education and finally alternatives to education. Then what we are saying is that the very idea that someone know what you must learn is criminal. It's absurd. It's impossible. We, we, we cannot accept anymore, anymore that kind of things. Uh, that what we need to create is condition for learning and freedom. Uh, and that is what we have been doing. And what does that look like in practice? So, uh, you, you know, I can imagine talking to uh, a mother in her 30s, you know, who has a five-year-old who's just about to enter the school system, and they're looking for what the alternatives are, Waldorf, and etc. And how would you explain to this person what an uneducation education looks like? We have that experience every week here in Unitierra because there are groups of, uh, of parents coming to discuss how to abandon the school. That is not easy. It's one of the most challenging uh, things. Um, it, it's not easy because the question of the school is not only the question of education in general, but what to do with the kids. That if you really de-school your child, your children, and you don't have, uh, are no longer with an institution to which you can, uh, in which you can deposit your children. You need to, to change your life. You cannot continue living the usual way, <laughs> doing your work and going to your work and doing your things. What to do with your children? And then that is very challenging. That is what we are discussing here. I think that Illich started his critique of the industrial model production with his schooling because it's the most radical thing. Uh, you really need to change your way of life. You cannot live without the school. Uh, it's really the pillar of the modern society. The whole society is organized around the school. And then if you eliminate the school, the, 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 the whole thing is begins to collapse. The parents can't go to school now and leave their children in right, some incubator, and then they're not being trained in vocational job skills for the industrial market economy. Yeah, that is, and the question is, um, I am telling you that for 60 years now I have been involved with this critique of the school, etc. I have never seen what is happening today in the world. I have never seen the interest of millions of people in alternative ways of learning. The parents are seeing the poor children in the house plugged into the computer, uh, plugged into the stupid things that they are getting uh, in, in, in the screen. And then uh, the many, many parents are saying, no, no, this is not possible. I don't want to, to doom my poor children to this kind of life. And then they begin to, to look for alternative ways of, of learning. Uh, and this is uh, what we are doing, talking with them and, and, and showing uh, the many way, different ways in which you can, you can learn. Uh, I, I must tell you that um, perhaps one piece of story uh, should be introduced about Unitierra, because this happens with everything that we, we do. We started because of the indigenous people in Oaxaca in 1997. Uh, they created something that they called the, the Indigenous Forum, and then they present periodically the position of the indigenous people to the society. And then 1997, after one year of meditation and discussion in assemblies, they came to the people and told them the educational system is conceived 
to de-Indianize us, to destroy us, to destroy the condition of being indigenous. And they said, and it has succeeded for 200 years. Millions of indigenous people enter the educational system and came out, they are no longer indigenous. They are something else that we don't know exactly what it is, but they are no longer indigenous. The school is conceived in Mexico and everywhere in the, in the, in the world to destroy, to, it is a cultural side instead of genocide. Yes, we will not kill them, but we will transform them in something else. Then the indigenous people of Oaxaca, they said in 1997, enough, basta, we cannot accept, uh, accept that any, any longer. And then they started to close the schools. You can imagine the scandal. Uh, the front page is uh, everywhere. These barbarians, we can, they are dooming their children to ignorance. They should not be autonomy. We need to do something against these guys. And they put an incredible pressure, political and economic pressure on them. But many of them persisted. And then a good anthropologist, we, we know him, and decided to teach a lesson to these parents. And then he designed some tests to apply it to children going to the school and to children not going to the school, to show the parents, this is what you are doing to your poor children. They are being left behind. For his surprise, these children not going to the school were better not only in knowing how to cultivate the milpa, how to live in the community, how to attend the fiestas, etc., but also how to read and write and geography or history. Better that children going to the school with one exception, they did not know how to sing the national anthem. <laughs> that was the only advantage <laughs> of the children <laughs> going to the school. And of course, these communities were very happy and then continued with the experience uh, with these children. But then they came with us two or three years later saying, well, what will happen with our young men and women? After they learned a lot of things they can learn in the community, and they are curious, and they want to learn something that no one knows in the community. Because they don't have any diploma, they cannot continue their studies. And then we invented UNITERRA, with them and for them. If you see the, from the founders of UNITERRA, it is indigenous and non-indigenous people coming together uh, to create something, to host this curiosity of young men and women that want to learn something. At the very beginning, it was uh, very, it was fun, real fun, uh, because we created this for every person come here. We don't have any curriculum. We, we don't have any program of studies. We try to support the people that want to learn something and to support their learning by doing what, he, what the person wants to learn. For example, a person comes and says, I want to become an agrarian lawyer. Okay, the next day, he is working with an agrarian lawyer. Of course, a good agrarian lawyer, is, he is our friend. And, and uh, he's very interested in this, uh, that this guy learns very soon how to be an agrarian lawyer, uh, because he will be very useful in the, in the firm. And then in more or less 18 months, he is a good agrarian lawyer. He knows nothing about the uh, labor law or constitutional law, all the other branches of law, but he knows everything. And then he presents cases in, in the courts and wins. The, the, and then he is ready to become an agrarian lawyer. 
But that was only one sum of the cases. The students even destroyed that, that way. The most popular area was popular communication. The young men and women wanted something in communication. And then we had something that was a kind of curriculum. We were saying, well, in a year they need to learn how to produce a radio program, how, how to use the mic, uh, how to produce videos, how to, uh, to print a pamphlet, etc. All of them, 100% of the students destroyed that curriculum at one point, saying, no, no, I am not interested in only the thing. The thing that I want to do is video. The thing that I want to do is radio. This is my thing. And, then, and they, they started doing it. And then we had some of the best, uh, the, the, the best uh, guy producing video in Oaxaca, uh, Leonard here, how to produce video. And he, dis he stopped it. This is my thing. This is what I want to do. So, so in this model of self-directed, apprentice-based, practical skills that you are drawn to rather than rote memorization, etc. But what do you say to the parent then who's like, how does my child learn to read and write and do math and do the basics? Like, how does that, how does that process happen if you're de-schooling your, your child? The basic argument is when the child wants, when the child is interested with someone that he or she loves. Uh, that is for us very important. First, all the children are, they are a real pest because they are all the time asking questions and they want to know everything. From the very beginning, when the child is one year old, he's already asking questions and trying to imitate the others. Then you don't need to teach them to wash their teeth because when they see you washing your teeth, they are curious and they want to know and they want to have uh, the, 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 the brush. They, 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 they want to learn. And then it is reacting to this, um, not telling them this is the time to learn how to write, how to read. It's when they see the, their brothers, uh, someone else, a friend, etc., reading and enjoying reading, and then he can say, I want to do the same. And then if that child is ready, he wants to learn how to read, how to write, then that is the time. And you find his brother, his mother, anyone. Let me tell you a story. A very close friend of Ivan and a friend of us, uh, Richard Westheimer, in Cincinnati in, in the United States, decided to the school, the, his five children, and uh, adopt this principle. And then the third of his uh, children, a, a girl, was not interested in reading. And this guy was very concerned. And she was six years old, seven years old, eight years old, and she was not reading, and she was not interested in reading, even if her brothers were, all of them were reading pretty well. She was not interested. And when the father started to tell her, Eva is the name of this girl, Eva, um, perhaps you need to, she answered, you told me that I am free to do whatever I want. I'm not interested in reading. Uh, and then when she was more than nine years old, she became interested in reading. She is now, 20 years later, the reader of the family. She's the one reading like mad, reading everything that, can, uh, that she, she can collect. 
she decided to read when she was ready. She was really interested, and then she was really passionate to, to, to read. And then he's, he's reading a lot. I think this lesson, it's for me, it's a very important principle to give the children the opportunity to decide in what moment they want to read what. Of course, there are questions of survival. They need to learn how to cross the street uh, with you as soon as possible, because if not, they will die. Uh, there are some things that they need to, to see, that they need to learn immediately for survival. Uh, but again, interacting with them in freedom, trying, trying to create the opportunity for uh, that the children decide when to learn. And, and this is inspired by indigenous knowledge systems. This is the way most indigenous cultures are teaching children. There's no formal education. It's mimicry, it's integration in the community life, integration in family life. And in fact, I think in indigenous peoples in Oaxaca, uh, we can see and experience that Aries and Elish are right. Uh, child, um, the idea of childhood is a modern creation. It does not exist in the indigenous community. They are not children. There is not a category of people called the children. They are members of the community. They leave the children, the first one, two, or even three years with the mother. Uh, take, uh, the mother takes care of them, living with the mother, protecting uh, by the mother. But after that, they are members of the community and they attend all the, the fiestas, etc. They learn by seeing and experiencing the different aspects. And after they are three years old, of course, this is um, considered uh, children's work, etc. problems of, of uh, human rights or, or whatever. The children are participating in the, in the real uh, life of the community in, in every possible aspect. Then accompanying the father, the child can accompany the father uh, to the milpa to cultivate the, the, the corn and the, the girl accompanying the mother in the activities uh, to produce tortillas, etc. This is happening today, uh, Elnur. Um, you have today here in, in, in Oaxaca, uh, you have the school through the screen and you have the children plugged into the screen and then the teacher will come to help him in the screen. And then, but at that moment, the father is going to the milpa, and then the child, the child escapes and go with the father to the milpa, and of course the father protects him against the teacher and against the school system, because now the children are again uh, living with the community, living with the parents, and learning in the traditional way, uh, learning by doing with uh, with parents, with the family, with the community, mm -hmm. learning real life and. Things to leave. And this is why you said you would have to change your life radically if you wanted to de-school your children, because for parents embedded in modernity, living in an urban environment, uh, what is the child going to learn from from that parent, right? Who, who who's not practicing food sovereignty? Who's not practicing community life? That is what uh, they are learning. This is what is happening here. We have uh, many, many different groups uh, of people coming here for this process. Uh, we have an area for children in Unitierra, 
where uh, be, be, the parents come and we have discussions here and the children are, are enjoying themselves in, in another room. Uh, not not uh, really learning, not any curriculum, not, not any teacher taking care of them, uh, enjoying themselves. But basically discussing what to do, how we need to reorganize our lives. COVID is helping because uh, many people, millions of people, have been losing their jobs and the jobs will not come back. And then they, they are forced to reinvent themselves. Uh, to give example there of the city of Oaxaca, Oaxaca was a city uh, living on the tourists. And then thousands and thousands of people were working in the restaurants, working in the hotels, or producing uh, food, goods and services for the tourists. And suddenly there are no tourists. You, you, you are now here very uh, welcome exception <laughs> in Oaxaca because there are no, really, there are no, not many tourists. And then you have thousands of people that cannot find a job, I will never find a job of the kind of job they had, a job or a source of income. And they, they need to reinvent themselves. And then reinventing themselves, one way this is we are working with them just is reproducing food, for example. Food is a gastronomic paradise and people need to eat. And then instead of uh, going to Walmart or to a Starbucks and to buying food, and uh, you, you can see in the street here in Oaxaca, Uber Eats bringing food to you at home. Uh, but instead of having that kind of things, you can produce your own food or have the arrangements between people in the city and people in the countryside producing food for the, for the change. Mm -hmm. That implies changing the lives. Mm -hmm. and then the children may accompany this process. But in fact, what we are doing, and it is very difficult, I must tell you, first creating opportunities for the children to meet with other children in the current conditions with the lockdown and these kind of things. Finding ways for the children. But the most important point for us, not only for the children to be with other children, but the children to experience directly a whole world of different activities. It, it, it is not easy. Uh, we, we are saying the child should select. I want, uh, this guy is a philosopher and I love what he is doing. And I want to learn how to philosophize with him. And you are a carpenter and then he suddenly loves what you are doing as a carpenter, but he needs to find to see, to experience firsthand the philosopher and the carpenter and, and, and to coexist with them and see this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. This, we are trying to create the opening also for people in the communities because perhaps in the communities, in many indigenous communities, very traditional communities, they don't have many opportunities except for their traditional cultivation, etc. And then we need to create opportunities where for them to see other kind of things to come back to the communities. Mm -hmm. For our immense satisfaction, Arnold, uh, most, perhaps 99% of all the indigenous men and women that learned something unitera are back in their communities. Mm -hmm. It was not an opportunity to escape from their communities, 
that they are bringing back to the communities whatever they learned here. So if we were to apply this model at a bigger scale, and we, this was embedded in our vision for the post-capitalist world, what, what do you think the dominant culture would need to unlearn, to de-school, to deprogram? What aspects of our culture? I think that the most aspect of the uh, the, the most important aspect um, is um, it, it's combined in, in 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 one one point is first that I know what the next generation should know. That is a principle that should be abandoned, and the associated with this is the very foolish idea that we are all the same. The industrial idea that all the humans are the same and then we are talking about homogeneous capacity. And Lord, the very idea that we have the same curriculum for children in New York, Mexico City, or a small village in Oaxaca is stupid. It's absolutely abhorrent. It is it's the most stupid thing. It is not to prepare labor force, saying labor, it's just, uh, a, a, a disease, a pathology of the, of the modern society, then we need to abandon this idea that we need to, uh, to um, schedule and, and format whatever the next generation will do. And we know increasingly that this is stupid because we know nothing about what will happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. how, how we will train the children in something that we basically ignore. Uh, that that we, we that there are no experts in tomorrow. <laughs> no one knows what will happen. And then how I will teach the students all the curriculum around the world is obsolete. It's useless. Jung used to say that every generation has a spirit project, you know, a sort of a generational task in which they incarnated for, right? And so one generation cannot know the other generations what, what they're being prepared for essentially. Um, uh, so in order to, to achieve this vision, enact this vision, what does the progressive movements, radicals, vanguard, social movements, what do we need to unlearn in, in ourselves in order to make this more uh, widespread? What's blocking us? You know, uh, Bio, who's a friend of both of ours, uh, says uh, part of the crisis is the way we are approaching the crisis you know, as progressives, as radicals, etc. I, I think it is the, I would say, the Leninist obsession with leading the masses. Leading the masses. Leading the masses. Mm -hmm. I know what to do. Then I will lead the others in, in the change. The creation of the vanguard. The vanguard can be a political organization or can be a small NGO that will lead the people in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. It is uh, something that it is not easy, but it is really beautiful, really exciting. Um, following the others, learning with the others, instead of leading the others. Uh, we say all the time that Onitiera is immersed in the social movement in Oaxaca, and we are totally fascinated with the many directions in which they are leading us. It is the people leading us, not us leading the people. Uh, this is really exciting, and this is beautiful. This is this is, and and, and people, uh, I think that with COVID, uh, when science is lost and they don't know what to do with this, 
and the politicians are uh, giving the most stupid instructions to everyone, people know how to react. People discover, people really know how, how to do. Um, uh, the, the authorities, the health authorities in Mexico uh, acknowledged uh, a few months ago that half the Mexicans cannot be locked down uh, because they cannot survive lockdown. <laughs> they, they, they cannot, they, they need to go out to, to, to survive. The people are going out to, to survive. And the, the question is not if they are using uh, masks or not. The question is what they are doing. Uh, I would say the most important point, and this is a lesson learned with the people, not, not taught by us, is the most important point is sitting. The whole point with the virus is eating better, is eating well, to produce, uh, to improve your capacity to resist the virus or to use, to resist all these kind of things. Um, they don't know the official, the, fi the figure uh, of recent studies saying that 90% of the people that diet for the virus diet because of previous conditions of obesity and diabetes and these kind of chronic conditions. The problem is the obesity and diabetes and these chronic conditions. The industrial food model. The industrial food model. And this is exactly what the people have been doing. The figure in Oaxaca is impressive. One reaction of communities. We have 12,000 communities in Oaxaca. These 12,000 communities, at least half of them, closed themselves because of the virus, after the fear of the virus, etc. Not lockdown, closed the village. Then no one can come into the village. Even if someone of the village can needs to go out, it's with control, with a very appropriate filter for that person with quarantine if needed, if someone was coming back from the US or from Mexico City, quarantine. But then inside the village, many villages closed the village to junk food. No more Coca-Cola, no, no, no more all these stupid things. And suddenly the community discovered how much they were dependent of that stupid food. I was a community, they were eating a lot. It was not only a few Coca-Cola addicts, it was the whole village was, were eating this kind of, of things. And then after they closed the, the possibility of having junk food, they were forced to reformulate the whole idea of eating. Uh, and then they started to put again more attention to the milpa, more attention some arrangements with the next village to complement what you were producing, to have a, a good diet with all the proper things. And exactly the same about healing. They started to rediscover the traditional healers, how much the traditional healers know, how much you, they need to, to discover when a person has the virus, to discover as soon as possible, and to do something immediately, not to wait until uh, uh, he or she is having problems. Then, and mixing the traditional remedies, the traditional practices, um, the, 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 the kind, of, uh, kind of sauna baths with eucalyptus, these kind of things that have been very, very effective. Uh, we, we have the figures, uh, um, in the whole American continent, the uh, proportion of people dying in indigenous communities is higher 
than the average. Why? Because they were suffering a lot of misery, malnutrition, uh, health problems of every kind. They were in very bad conditions. That was the usual condition of the indigenous people, a sector very oppressed by the modern society. But in Oaxaca, with these communities, you see the figures. You have um, 110 municipalities, that means several hundred communities, with not a single case of uh, the virus, not one case. And second, those with cases, very few deaths. And de those deaths are basically people who were in very fragile conditions before. Meaning people are not seeing the virus as the enemy. They are rediscovering that the enemy was how they abandoned the people in delicate conditions, mm -hmm. how they abandoned some of their old people, some of the people with obesity or diabetes, etc., and they, they're taking care of them. They are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. so this is a good transition to, to, the, to the last question I'll ask. Um, and we talked a bit about this idea earlier before we were recording, the idea of centropic frames. So syntropy is the counter to entropy, right? Entropy is degradation, um, and syntropy is almost like a positive feedback loop. And so at Culture Hack Labs, we talk about this idea of syntropic frames, which are memes, ideas, phrases, concepts, pieces of language that create uh, positive feedback loops, uh, healing, restoration, uh, through the very use of the language itself. And, and maybe uh, we can touch on uh, quickly on two concepts that um, I've heard you talk about. Uh, one is Kriyanka Mutual, yes. Kriyanka Mutual, and the other is Camino de Dad. Um, and just so we can also insert some of these uh, antigen memes, these syntropic frames into, into the discourse. So maybe you could just talk a bit about um, those two. I would say Comunalidad was a creation of two, in, two indigenous guys, independent creation, uh, a Mije and a Zapotec independently invented the same word, Comunalidad, basically to share with others uh, what kind of beings they were. That it was very difficult for them to explain this to others and say Comunalidad basically is to accept that you are not uh, an individual, that you are a we, not an I, that, or that every I is a we, the, that we are nodes in nets of relations, and that these nets are woven into a community. And then we are that community, that, uh, that we is the way we are. And even many, many people perceive themselves, first of all, as an expression of the community, as an, a, personal, a personalized expression of the communal spirit. Well, that is basically um, communalidad. Com there's, yeah. four, and there's four pillars to communalidad, right? You contribute to shared work, etc. Maybe you could say yes. a bit about that? Yes, it is. First, tequio means that it's uh, the communal work, that is, you are not paid for doing some work for the community. The community decide, oh, we will fix that straw that is in bad conditions, and then the, the whole people need to go and put some some work without any payment. This is this is take you. Uh, then you have the assembly that is the supreme authority of, uh, of the community, meaning the basic decisions in the community are taken by the assembly in which everybody participates. One very important point 
that I think we must include in this conversation. For us, the most important point today is what the women are doing on the March 8th. And I think that last year, at least in Oaxaca, in March 8th, in 2020, they broke the patriarchal normality in, in a spectacular way. And that we are living in, in that moment in which the patriarchal normality is no longer there. Then this is it's very, very important for us that in these 12,000 communities in Oaxaca, in the last 10 years, the assemblies took the decision that the women that were not allowed into the assemblies for hundreds of years, for centuries, now they, are, they have been allowed to come. And this is not that suddenly uh, the men were enlightened and then changed it because of this enlightenment. It is the struggle of the women. And, and many women assumed the, of the full responsibility of the villages when uh, the men went to, to the US or any other place. Then it is the assembly, it's now with men and women uh, have the, the full authority in the, in the village. And then you have cargos, it means that the, the community asks you to perform a cargo position of authority for them. It is for free, it is without honorarium, without payment, and then you are at the service of the community. You start very early in life, when you are just a child, and then you, you grow. Uh, you, 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 depending on how you do, you are improving in the level of the cargo they ask from you, until you are the municipal president or whatever. And then the fourth is, perhaps for me, the most important, the fiesta. The fiesta in which everybody participates, it is a moment to fix conflicts, People that have been fighting during the year arrange everything during the fiesta. They are together, they are enjoying themselves. The children are part of the fiesta, they participate, everybody participates. It is a very important moment. And there are many fiestas uh, in the communities. Um, in one place there was, they were going to put a factory. Uh, they realized a lot of tests. Uh, and they discover that they can be magnificent workers and say to us, this is a place for the factory. Uh, but then the people told them uh, that they will be very happy to work in the factory. But in that community, there are 112 days in which they cannot work because they have a kind of fiesta. <laughs> and then for the factory, it was impossible to accept <laughs> 112 days of fiesta, not work. <laughs> And they, they moved the factory to another place. And, and then maybe just a little bit about Crianza Mutual. Crianza Mutual, it's just a few years ago, because with the, uh, Arturo Escobar uh, in, in, in Colombia, we discovered that there were collectives, groups, that were doing fascinating things beyond the market and the state, that they were trying to create a different kind of life that in a sense, without any theoretical full formulation, they were assuming that the modern era ended, that capitalism is dead, that uh, everything is dead, that they need to create something different. And they started doing perhaps in one marginal area of, uh, of activity, 
or, or very important area of activity like eating, but just one area. They started with something like producing your, their, their, their own food, and then step by step, the step they started to cover uh, other different areas. And then we discovered that uh, they were collectives emerging every, everywhere. And then we say, well, let's try to identify them and put them in connection with each other from them to learn from each, from each other. Then after some time, they will offer mutual solidarity. And after some time, we will give them visibility for all the people that are discontented with the current conditions of the world but don't know how to do, can be inspired by them. And then we have now Crianza Mutua in, uh, in Mexico, in Colombia, and we also created a global tapestry of alternatives trying to find this all over the, all over the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, I must tell you something more about Unitira that is connected with this. Um, we, are, we, we assumed from the very beginning that we should be small, that we need to grow. We must not grow very much. Then uh, we call this Unitierra Oaxaca, meaning only for this, only for the city of Oaxaca. Then, but we shared our experience and other people started to like what we were doing and they have been doing. And then we have many community Unitierras. One community Unitierra, 30 minutes from here because the community decided to create something like Unitierra in their own way in that community. And then we have many communities. Other in Chiapas, there is Unitierra Chiapas next to the Zapatistas. You, we have Unitierra in Puebla and other Unitierras in Mexico. But you also have Unitierras now in Japan, in California, in Catalonia, in Toronto, in many different places where someone starts something of this kind for the people to learn by themselves in freedom learning by doing in different ways for different conditions beautiful beautiful thank you so much for your time gustavo and uh, yeah it's an honor to be here in oaxaca with you in unitiera thank you for the invitation to participate in this it's uh, as usual a very good adventure <laughs> what you are doing Thanks for being with us for this episode. You've been listening to the Deschooling Dialogues, a collaboration between Culture Hack Labs and Cosmos Journal. If you'd like to contact us about this podcast, you can reach out at info at cosmosjournal.org.